Welcome to the Vertical Life Podcast. My name is Nwama Nyamatejero. And in this episode, episode 1, I teach about Paul's charge to the Colossians, where he says that God had made them alive together with Christ by forgiving their sins. I talk about this and what it means for us today in our church. Colossians chapter 2, uh, we are in verse 11, we are going to read up to 15. Uh, these days I've been using the NIV uh, and it goes, um, In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you are dead in your, in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away and nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of God. Um, we've been we've been dealing with. Um, uh, I want to track back. We are starting with verse eleven, but I want to track back to verse ten. Verse ten. I think verse ten is the most if not the most fundamental verse of verse 10 of chapter 2 is the most fundamental verse in this book. Particularly if you are reading it in the KJV. In the KJV it says, and you are complete in him. And you are complete in him. Although other versions talk about being, uh, being filled in him, but this brings out the message. That you are complete in him and you need nothing else from the world. Because you have him who is the embodiment of God himself. And so when Paul talks about Christ who is, who is like our completeness. He goes ahead and he goes to brass tacks. He goes to the details and he goes down to explain what this completeness really is. And uh, it's what we are going to look at in these four verses, four or five. My mathematics is poor. Now he talks about circumcision. He talks about baptism. He talks about the, the written codes. He talks about uh, regulations. He talks about forgiveness and all those things. We are going to talk about them. But first, a circumcision and baptism. Um at first you have to notice, of course when you read verse 11 and verse 12, you read about circumcision, Paul talking about circumcision and baptism. But when he talks about circumcision, he's, he's countering a false teaching in the church. 
he's writing to, particularly brought about and brought forward by the Judaizers. Judaizers were the people who came from, uh, from Jerusalem and they would tell people that you need to keep the law of Moses. It was still important. And so, even when Paul had preached, even in Ephesians, Paul writes about this uh, circumcision, he talks about these things. And, uh, but these people come to, 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 to the Colossians and they are telling them, no, the circumcision, the spiritual circumcision you're talking about, well, it's good, but you need to add the physical one, the one of Moses. And so they taught them that they needed an outward circumcision since they already had uh, a spiritual one or an inward one. And uh, they taught a kind of Christianity that was based on works. Uh, for them, a spiritual circumcision was made, which was made without hands, was not enough. The circumcision of Christ, what, the, the one Paul talks about when he says uh, that the, the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision but done by hands of men, but the one done by Christ. They are telling them that this is not enough. You need to go and be circumcised like the people used to be circumcised, according to the law of Moses. And uh, are they still wanted? When, when, you, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you start to examine this, you realize a works righteousness, a self-salvation project, where uh, these people still need to have control over salvation. They need to have a say in their salvation. Uh, where the pious and the obedient and the strong get in, and the weak and the feeble and the poor are kicked out. When you start to put these hurdles of you need to do this, in essence, you are, what you are saying is that there is us who can do it, so this thing is for us, but there is also them who can do it. So this thing is not for them. And so, it would be fine if you are doing this in, in, in Jerusalem for the Jews, but when you take it to the Gentiles, for the law that was given to the Israelites, which didn't have a bearing to the Gentiles, you would see that what the Judaizers were intending to do was restrict this salvation to themselves and not to the Colossians, who are Gentiles, so to speak. And uh, it, is, it is more like belonging to a Rotary Club, where we say our goal is to serve the community. It's only those that want, that have this desire, or want to have the desire to serve the community, that go in. In other words, there is a requirement. If you can serve the community and you love to do it, you can build boreholes, you can build wells, you can build schools, you can contribute, you can go for runs on Sunday morning. It's fine, you can go in. But what about those who can't do those things? They can't belong to the group. And that's the difference. The difference between those groups, other religions and Christianity. Because Christianity, in a sense, the qualification is actually not being qualified. It takes everyone. Those that think are qualified do not really qualify. But the unqualified are the ones that are qualified for the salvation that comes through Christ. And so, the idea of circumcision tends to limit those who are out of the law of Moses, who are out of the jurisdiction, so to speak, of the law of Moses. Uh, but, 
Uh, now, this circumcision we are talking about, uh, the context of this circumcision, the putting off, Paul talks about putting off, the putting off of the body of sins, of the flesh, uh, when you're circumcised, girls are not circumcised, when you're circumcised, um, you, you, you lose, you lose a foreskin, you lose a skin that is on top, you lose a foreskin, an outer covering, uh, and so is the circumcision Paul is talking about. Like, like the other old circumcision where you lose a foreskin, an outer covering, what Paul is talking about is that in Christ Jesus, you put off the body of sin, your flesh, on a daily basis. And we are going to see in chapter 3, verse 5, where he's telling them to always mortify the flesh, always kill the flesh. And this is, this is the idea, circumcision. Paul is waxing eloquent about this, uh, because in Christ Jesus we put off the body of sin on a daily basis. And of course, like I've said, he's going to repeat it in chapter 3. Now notice that he does not separate circumcision from baptism. Actually, if you read your Bible, aside from the KJV, if you read the ESV and the NIV, realize that baptism and circumcision are separated by a comma, not a full stop. It's one sentence. And they are the same. Uh, in a sense that baptism like circumcision involves death on the part of sinners. And what do I mean? In baptism, the old man, the one Paul calls the old Adam, who is evil and bent towards the world and the flesh and the devil, is drowned to death, and then a new man resurrects who is according to Christ. Uh, the essence of baptism is that you drown the old nature, and as you raise from the, fa- the font, the new man rises with you, the new man that is in Christ as a new creature, as a new being. It's, it's the same thing with, 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 with uh, circumcision, if you realize. It's about dying and resurrecting, mortifying the sin and mortifying the flesh. And so, both, <coughs> both circumcision and baptism are prefigures of what would be. And this, what I mean is that uh, they are symbols, they are types, they are signs and they are shadows of what would come to us in Christ. They are figures. They represent something specific. They don't carry meaning in and of themselves. If you separate them from Christ, they don't have meaning. For example, baptism. The first instance we see baptism is in Exodus. Uh, when the children of Israel are, are, are coming from Egypt, and they are going to the promised land. They come from Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of the old nature and the old man. And they go through the Red Sea, which are the waters of baptism. And then they enter the desert, the desert which is uh, the Christian life for the Christian walk. And through the desert they enter Canaan, which is supposed to be, uh, which is supposed to be uh, a place where we are glorified where we are given glorified bodies, where we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. And so, the waters of baptism, the Red Sea was supposed to transform the Israelites 
from different creatures, from the different people that were when they were still in Egypt. They were supposed to be new beings because they were headed for a new place. But baptism is not just resurrection. It is also death. If you look closely at verse 12, you realize uh, having been buried with him in baptism. It starts with being buried before he talks about being raised. So we die to the flesh, to our sinful desires. We kill them. The theological word that is used here is mortification. We mortify the flesh on a daily basis. We die with Christ. We partake in Christ's death so that we resurrect with him as well. So if Christ does not die, and if he does not resurrect, baptism is really meaningless. Because according to this verse, Paul says that the same power that resurrected Christ is the same power, the same power of God that resurrected Christ is the same power that resurrects us from the life of sin and the living according to the flesh and all that stuff. And so I said, I said dying to sin is called mortification. But when we resurrect and live to God, that is called vivification. And so for courtesy. Um, so the essence of salvation is death and resurrection. If, if you've been following closely, death and resurrection. You don't separate them. You have to die to your sinful passions so that you will resurrect to a new life as a new creature. There are no shortcuts. Now sometimes people come and they say, I am a Christian. But there is a life they lead. They lead a double life. They are like, they, they, they like FBI agents, so to speak. They, they go this side and they lead this life. They come this side and they lead this life. But what Paul is telling us here is that by the power of God himself, by his grace alone, we are cut off from this world, the Egypt, so to speak, the sinful world, where we follow the passions of the flesh. We are cut off from that world, and we are brought into the presence of God. We are brought into a newness of nature, a newness of, of, of life. Look at verse, verse 12. It says that the resurrection of believers happens only by the power of God. There, when you read critically, it says, through faith by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Through faith. It doesn't say you get the tools and you get to work. It says you believe and look to Christ. You look to God and His finished work in Christ and believe that this God who raised Christ from the dead will also raise me from the dead. So, the resurrection happens only by the power of God. It's not our work, and the very power of God that is at work, that resurrected Christ is the same power that is at work in all Christians, resurrecting them every day. By the way, we die every day, and we are resurrected every day. But what I know is that a dead person can't resurrect himself. There has to be someone external from them to touch them to infuse life in them, to breathe life into them. And so God, through his Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, according to what Paul is saying here, does work in us by resurrecting us every day to a newness of life on a daily basis. So we die every day and we resurrect every day. That is, that is 
the Christian life, death and resurrection. Death and resurrection. I mean, when you have moments of, uh, of, of confession, where you, you, you critically look at your life and analyze your life and, and put it under the microscope and, and see all the areas in your life, the minutest areas in your life, where things are not happening and where things are happening, you start to see sin. And the, 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 the God that has enabled you to see that sin is at work to help you kill that sin on a daily basis. You, 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 you mortify it and it springs up again the following day. And so that is the mark of the Christian life. You're going to walk from the day you are saved to the day you leave this earth fighting sin, killing sin. You don't kill it today and you rest and you say, I'm through. So we are called to look into our lives on a daily basis and examine our lives and look to what God is saying in scriptures about us. And use it as, 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 as a microscope and examine our lives and see those areas in our lives where we are not walking according to the counsel of God. And repent. Um, uh, I, I want to, I want to talk about the last portion of, of, of these verses that I read. Verse 13 to 15. Uh, Paul here, uh, when you look carefully, realize that Paul equates death to uncircumcision. Now we've been talking about circumcision and how the children of God are circumcised. In other words, they, they mortify their flesh and their sinful passions. But Paul says that the people who are dead to God are uncircumcised. And so when you are uncircumcised, in other words, when you're still entertaining the passions of the flesh, when you are still, when you give a blind eye to the passions of the flesh that exist, and don't do something about it, and not grieve over the sin that exists in you, then there is uncircumcision in that area of your life. So he says that there are people, that these people are, the people that God has brought from death to life, and he's talking specifically about the Colossians. He says that God has brought them from death to life, and he says that by forgiving their transgressions and cancelling the, the writing, the handwriting of ordinances, of course, of Moses that was against them. When you when you read, I'll read the, the verse. I think it's verse thirteen. He says that when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He doesn't stop there. He says, He forgave us all our sins. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations, which was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away and nailed it to the cross. So John Calvin Talking about this verse says uh, that uh, the ordinances we read about, the, 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 the writing, the handwriting that was against us, he says that these are ordinances, the ordinances that were given to Moses, and we are just not talking about the, the Ten Commandments, the moral, we are talking about all the laws that were given, the, the ordinances, you have to eat this, you have to do this, you have to do this. When he talks about this, John Calvin says that the ordinances had in them an acknowledgement of guilt. In a sense, 
that whenever God told people to wash themselves, yeah, it meant that they were polluted. When God says wash yourself, you are dirty. So in a sense, when God says wash yourself, if you are critical enough, you'll be filled with guilt. Realize that you are not clean. Um, it's like kids in school who dread corrections. Is there any person who loved corrections in school? Of course, he communicates something that you are not good enough. And so, it brings a sense of guilt in you. And so, the reason this guilt comes is because Paul communicates the same point here. When he says, in verse 13, uh, no, in verse 14, he says, having cancelled the, 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 the written code with its regulation that was against us, that was against us, it wasn't for us, it was against us, and he continues to say that it stood opposed to us. It always condemned us. We were always filled with guilt. Whenever the children of Israel thought about it, they were filled with guilt in themselves. In other words, they were condemned. And if this written code condemned them, what is Paul talking about? This tool that condemned them. He says that it was cancelled and nailed to the cross. It means that the very thing that condemned the children of God was laid on Christ himself who took this condemnation on himself who took this guilt on himself and nailed it to the cross so that their sins will be forgiven and God will not be angry with them again and that as Paul says in Romans chapter 8 there will be no condemnation for the children of God who are in Christ Jesus. Which is really, 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 really good news. And, uh, uh, we are, we are now looking, we are now looking at God in Jesus dealing not only with sin, forgiving your sin, we are also looking at Him taking away the guilt that this sin brings and the shame it brings in community. When it is internal, we call it guilt. When it's when it pours out into community and other people know about our guilt, it becomes shame. And so, God doesn't just deal with our sin. He deals with our guilt as well. And the good news is that he nails it to the cross. Christ takes it to his cross so that we are, so that we are without guilt. Uh, what we need to learn, what we need to learn from these verses is that a new life in Christ Jesus is affected by forgiveness of sins. If your sins are not forgiven, you can't claim to be alive in Christ. You can't. Because if your sins are not forgiven, and the blotting of guilt and the triumph of the, over the devil in your life has not happened, then you are still dead. You are not alive in him. And uh, if we are going to experience any freedom as Christians, there has to be uh, that declaration, that declaration should be real to us. Where Paul says that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It has, in light of the verses we just read, it has to be real. It has to be true for the children of God in every aspect of their lives. In fact, uptight Christians uh, who always played safe, they are Christians who played safe who don't want you to use particular language. 
they pretend and they try to be liked by everyone. You've seen them and you know them. Uh, they do it because they think that their goodness will make them either likable or saved. And the reason they play it safe is because they think that they are, because they think that they may step over a line and God will be mad with them. That is the reason why people in church don't take risks. That is why people in church are so careful. They think that God is standing there with a stick waiting to clobber them when they step over the line. Yet God himself says that there is no condemnation for his children that are in Christ. And he has said in verse 13, verse 14 actually, that he has nailed this written code that always condemns us, that makes us feel that God is always after us. He has nailed it to the cross. He has no issue against us. So you are free to, if you can't dance, you are free to dance. He's not going to slap you because you can't dance. He's not going to question you because you made a mistake. This, the, the reason these uptight Christians don't have the freedom is because they think that this God is going to get them. He's out to get them. He's a bookkeeper trying to tally their successes and their failures in a ledger book. So realize that when we miss what Paul is trying to communicate is that we will miss the essence of salvation. The freedom. And of course there can't be joy when there is no freedom. And you can't have harmony in community when there is no joy, when there is no freedom. When no one wants to talk to each other. When everyone is suspicious of the other person. When I can't do this because the other person may see me and maybe judge me. Now, if God is not going to judge you, this should free you to go out there and risk it all on the playground. And what do I mean here? What I mean here is that the grace of God frees you to go out there to love people who are not going to love you back. It frees you to go out there and give to causes where you're not going to earn a profit or a benefit or anything. It frees you to go and take the back seat. For Christ's sake, it even frees you to put your money in an envelope and not write your name there. Because you are not justified by the amount you give in or, about, or whether someone reads your name or not. You can risk to love you can risk to give. You can risk to serve when there is nothing in it for you. Because everything you need, you have been given, you have received from Christ Jesus. And because the people you are loving can do nothing to condemn you, they can do nothing to harm you because you are hidden in Christ, you can serve your community. You can look at them as people to be loved and not object to be objects to be used. You can you can you can you can start to love people and use things instead of using people and loving things. Which is which, which is what happened in the garden. It was inverted. The people we are supposed to love are the people we use. There's a quote I love from one author. He says that that down here we walk on other people, we manipulate them, we use them so that we can get riches, so that we can get gold. But in the city of God, 
people are loved and you actually walk on gold because the streets are, are gold. And so you are free to love people. You are free to love people and not use them. Because you don't need to use them. Whatever the devil promises to give you in these people, you know you already have in Christ Jesus. So you don't need a thing <coughs> from these people. And it's a lie. If the devil lies to you that someone is going to satisfy you. And even if it's a marriage, to assume that your spouse is going to satisfy you infallibly, you are lying to yourself. I, 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 was, I was trying to talk about a life that has gripped this idea of freedom and the forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of sins and the charge by Paul that there is now no condemnation. You love recklessly because you've been loved recklessly. Um, but if, if, if you don't get these ideas, of course you become the opposite. And so, you won't realize that actually forgiveness, Paul talks about forgiveness here, and equates it, he puts it, equates forgiveness with, 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 with being alive in Christ, because forgiveness does free people. It does set people free, and, uh, and it transforms their lives, and it brings them closer to God. And, uh, before I, I conclude, I, I, I want to I want to read for you a paragraph from this book. Um, there are a few words about forgiveness and mercy and grace. Uh, I hope it helps. Uh, at a dinner one evening, my friend Dr. Rod Rosenblatt told me a true story of how he wrecked his car when he was 16 years of old. Rod had been drinking and in fact, he and his friends were all drunk. After the accident, Rod called his dad, and the first thing his dad asked him was, Are you alright? Rod assured him that he was fine. Then he confessed to his father that he was drunk. Rod was naturally terrified that about how his father might respond. Later that night, after Rod had made it home, he wept and wept in his father's study. He was embarrassed ashamed and guilty. At the end of the ordeal, his father asked him this question. How about tomorrow we go and get you a new car? Rod now says, and he has lived a lot of life, being nearly 70 at the time of this writing, that he became a Christian in that very moment. God's grace became real to him in that moment of forgiveness and mercy, Rod has since spent his life as a servant of Christ and a spokesman for the theology of Grace and Concordia Seminary and as the co-host of the White Horse in radio program. Rod's father's grace didn't turn Rod into a drunk. It made him love his father and love the Lord he served. Now, that is the power of forgiveness. That is the power of receiving forgiveness when you don't really deserve it. It brings you to a point of weeping and it brings you to a point of embracing the gift because you don't really deserve it. And so it does also happen to us in those moments when we think that we deserve condemnation and guilt. God decides to forgive us 
and nailed this guilt on the cross and laid on the shoulders of his son instead of our shoulders, this does transform us as people greatly. Uh, and so there is freedom from guilt and forgiveness at the cross of Jesus. And this is the point. That your guilt has been nailed to the cross. Now you can walk and laugh and love and share and celebrate other people. Well knowing that no mystic under the sun can hold a candle to the love of God that calls us home. Nothing. Nothing can hold a candle to the love of God that draws us home. You can go out and celebrate other people and love them and enjoy them and laugh with them. This can really transform your life and your relationship and knowing that God is not counting your sins against you. He has counted these sins on his son and your guilt on his son so that we can stand free as his children. This is paradigm shifting. It is mind-blowing and it is true. 